amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. Tonight is our Pride of Olympus crossover, part of the Archons and Aeon series. And I'm greatly honored to announce our first show, which I'm calling Starfleet Speaks for now because I don't have a title, but I will have a title soon. So without further ado, let's welcome Fossler, U.S. Challenger, and his co-host, Maria Dutilli of the USS Stella Pirata. Greetings and welcome, Starfleet officers. Hey, Her- I can't believe hey, how's it going? Going great. <laughs> this is when we were just doing this. <laughs> I know. Oh, the, the months pass by uh, very quickly in the weeks and the days, and uh, uh, the future is just zooming before us. Um, I'm really interested in the, some of the topics that uh, um, you guys suggested, and I'm looking forward to listening here from the distance. Thank you. I, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, we've got a lot of things that have been happening within the last month. Uh, you know, we've been enjoying uh, Star Trek Picard. Last, epi- last episode here, uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, talking about what we thought we would see and, and was that we're expecting to see. And now we've got, uh, you know, uh, four episodes under our belt, and we can talk about wow. that. And uh, other fandom topics. Um, you know, Fantastic. so, um, I, I know we were going to talk in honor of president's day to talk about, you know, uh, well, the only president that I've seen is 
So happy President's Day, and, uh, you know, and, and we'll go from there and, and, and uh, bounce all over the place. Oh, awesome. Th- happy President's Day to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm older than you, uh, Maria, but I remember back as a kid, uh, President's Day, not that it was a big holiday, I mean, other than sales, and uh, I don't remember if we got off from school for that, but... Um, no, okay, I did I'm not sure. get off of school for President's Day, but I got off today for work. Yay. Oh, that's cool. Well, that's why you're here with us, and I'm glad for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, was, I was not as fortunate, but uh, but I'm here anyway. And um, I remember, you know, having those little silhouette pictures of, of basically George and Abraham Lincoln that you would put into the windows around this time, you know, in between the valley. Oh, yeah, parts. I remember doing that. And you would make your own silhouette as well. That's mm-hmm. what we also did. So, yeah, I, I totally remember that, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the lost thing. I don't think anybody does that anymore. Um, I don't even know if people decorate for Valentine's anymore. I, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but I, I do remember the, the classic episode of uh, Star Trek that featured, uh, a, well, a kind of a recreation. It wasn't the actual Abraham Lincoln, but... Uh, um, you know, from the Excalibur episode where where they fought, uh, you know, it was Abraham Lincoln of, uh, versus uh, Colonel Green and uh, uh, the original Kalis, uh, who who miraculously wore a Klingon uniform, a, contempor- a, a, a contemporary uniform <laughs> of the Klingons at that time. What a coincidence! Genghis Khan, you know, and uh, and and it was Kirk Spock, uh, Lincoln, and uh, uh, Surak. So um, right, right. Yeah. So it's um, been a while since I watched that episode. It's been a while. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen that that episode recently either. Uh, just the other day, we my wife and I caught uh, Assignment Earth, uh, which was always a, a classic, fun episode to watch. And, of course, as mm-hmm. we know, that was in a pilot for a show that Gene Roddenberry wanted to do. And I think it would have been a great show. Um, mm-hmm. I was always a big fan of uh, Robert Lansing from 12 O'Clock High. And, uh, you know, I know he was in the show The Equalizer. But uh, I always thought he was such a cool guy. And um, Right. Any, any part he ever played, even if it was a, a bit part on, on – uh, I know he did a – uh, a guest starring role on um, the Flying Nun of all shows. He always just had this presence, and I think he would have made such a you know Gary Seven would have been such a uh, interesting you know Assignment Earth was probably what it would be called, but it would have been a very interesting show. But uh, yeah, alas, yeah, it could have been yes. You know, alas, we don't even get an action figure. Playmates never made an yeah. action figure. The Migos, you know, we got Khan, but we didn't get Gary Seven. So, or Roberto right, right. Lincoln. Speaking of Lincoln, Roberto Lincoln, you know Terry Gar. Um, so, um, but uh, yeah, uh, I know there's yeah. been some. Thought. Oh, but I did watch that on um, Lincoln Vampire Slayer, talking about presidents. You, know, you, 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 you endured that movie that I told you about. Jeez. I, I commend oh, you. Oh, you well, your... it, it was it was interesting. I watched it twice because you're like, yeah, you know, we'll talk about a little bit about this on the show. 
Um, so I was like, okay, well, I gotta watch it. And I think it, I mean, it was, it was cute. Um, but at, at the same time, I think it relied on CGI graphics like way too much. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I think it was a little bit of an overkill on that. You know, that whole Matrix type of action. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I just it, it it was it was okay for what it was, but you know, I was like, yeah, it's just, um, there's only one reason why I'm watching this movie, and it's because of the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thank you for that. I commend you, and if I could promote you, I would. Yes, that, I do. do. I get that, a gold star? That goes star above and beyond the call of, of duty. Um, having seen <laughs> that movie, I, I could only watch it once, you know. Well, I watched it twice. I get a gold star for that. <laughs> yes, you do. You definitely do. Um, I, I kind of put that horror movie in the same category maybe a little lower than that movie that uh, was also on recently that played again, uh, that Matthew Smith was in um, with uh, uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. It was sort of mm-hmm. like, let's take a historic story or a historic figure and let's throw horror elements into it and see if it sticks. Um, right, so, right. Uh, but, but I think Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies was a little better. But uh, yeah, you know, totally ridiculous, but you know. Yeah, but it, it was cute just to see like Abraham Lincoln like wielding that axe in like that like kung fu style, you know, type of action yeah. was 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 comical, you know. Yes. Yes. Yes, I don't even know so, where the idea came from. Like, I have no idea know. where a type of idea of an axe wielding vampire slaying former president comes from, but it, it came from somewhere. Yeah. Um, I hope it stays there, but, uh, you know, in any, I, I have to say that um, in, in my role as a reporter years ago, I covered something where there was a, re, a recreation of, um, you know, uh, of, of Lincoln's address uh, at, at an event. And it was right around the time when that movie came out and the movie Lincoln, which was, Kind of around the same time, the 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 actual legit movie Lincoln, uh, and then there was you know Lincoln the Vampire Slayer. So um, mm-hmm. being the person that I am, and I I, I said uh, you know to the reenactor who was you know would not break character of course, and I said you know uh, and I, I I think it was commendable everything you did, including slaying the undead. And uh, he looked right. at me, smiled, knew exactly where I was going with this, and said, well, you know, there's been many tall tales told of me, but, uh, you know, I do my best. And I was like, yes, he, he played right along. It was great. So, right. Then probably wanted to take an axe and, like, smart-ass uh, reporter, you know. So, right, right. <laughs> but... Um, but I, I'm sure you've been catching up with, uh, you know, uh, watching uh, Star Trek Picard and spoiler alert. Yes, I watched the episode to today, actually. After my second viewing of uh, Lincoln, I watched my Picard show, and I, I absolutely love this show so much. You know, I, like, I, I, I absolutely loved it, uh, like how they're bringing in the characters. That's what I really enjoy, how they're bringing in the characters, how they brought in Jerry Ryan's character. You know, like, like 
where it makes sense. You know, you're just not putting in characters just like, oh, this is the fans want it. Like, and like, here, we'll throw this character in. Like, it, it makes sense on when the characters are coming into the show. You know? Absolutely. And so, like, and I, I'm super excited about this show. Is there any particular part of the latest episode that you find a particularly interesting, Bob? Um, I just love the overall feel of how they're approaching Picard, number one. Um, mm-hmm. Because he's at a place in his life, you know, uh, and especially with this medical condition. Um, and right. There's a, there's a feeling of desperation there because he, you know, Picard was always a character who loved a mystery. And with everything that's happened to him, and now they've explained, you know, fully, uh, quicker than I expected them to, uh, why he decided to, re- you know, resign from Starfleet, um, right. Still, a decision you don't agree with, but um, you know, it, it shows that he's really he needs to solve this mystery, and it's almost like, hey, this is my last hurrah, you know. Um, right. I, I have to do this. Uh, it was touching. Just in, um, I, I watched episode three and four together last night with right. uh, uh, members of my crew, and. Uh, we, um, you know, there was that scene with the the young Romulan, or or rather, even before they got there, he he says to um, the the scientist, he, uh, or or I, I forgot who he said it to, but uh, I may not make it. I may not be coming through this area again. We have to d- make this detour, even though we have this big mm-hmm. mission. I've got to stop here and do this. Right. And, uh, yeah, because it's unfinished business on like. Um, what happened on that planet and like I just recently watched the episode and I found it very interesting about like the ethnic divide you know where where it's like said Romulans only you know and like how Picard like was you know was was taken back with that and like tried to like make that stance yeah you know and like go go to I was like I was like I understand the principle behind it but you're an old man and you're taking on a whole bunch of people all by yourself Right. You know, like right. I, I, I question, I question his, like you know, like there's a time and place. You know, like you, 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 exactly. that was just me though. I was like, wow, that's a pretty risky move, Picard. You know, like I mean, I, I, and I know like that situation, um, like will get you upset because like you work towards like you know rescuing the Romulans and stuff, and like it ended up in this kind of ethnic divide in this in this you know dilapidated community. But like, there's a time and place to pick your battles, you know. So. Exactly, and they don't. They weren't in a mood to hear an explanation. They they were mm-hmm. not receptive to, hey, this is what happened, you know. Like, no, that that's not. They they just endured a whole bunch of stuff within this last twenty years of disappointment, and they don't want to hear your excuses, even if they're good excuses. They don't want to hear it. They they've had to live this, and. Much like Picard had to adjust to a life where, you know, he was well-known, well-respected, mm-hmm. moving around the galaxy, and he was a flippin' admiral, these people were holding high positions. The one general, the, the one person who uh, kind of lost his head. Yeah, the one guy was a senator that got killed, yeah. 
Yeah, with the senator. So, um, you know, and now they're living on this backwater dust bowl planet, um, you know, scraping by. You know, like they're right. Exactly. They they don't care. And just like bouncing off what you just said about like you know Picard being like an admiral and stuff. Like Picard had that one moment again. Like it, I've seen this like a couple times. The first time when he was like went to Starfleet Academy and like he had that moment where oh like they're like expecting it. like you know who I am. I'm John Luke Picard. And then he like had yeah. that visitor badge. You had that that like little ego moment. And then you had another ego moment of well didn't you use my name? you know, like to bring down the force field of this planet here on, on episode four. And he was like, yeah, we tried, and it didn't work. You know, it was another moment of your name is, is not, you know, like 20 years it's ago, not, your name meant something. You're like, it doesn't hold the same weight as it once did. And, like, I think exactly. it's going to be a continuing theme with the card, you, you know, like of things have changed, and you need to learn how to accept this. And, and that is such a – part of the of, of the life process you know right. um you're you're flying high for quite a bit you have a reputation but then over time people you know people change positions your situation changes or you move and you you're no longer you know even a big fish in a small pond you're you're now an right. unknown so I thought that was a very, you know, that continues to be, I think, um, a major uh, theme in right. the show. Um, but right, the and it's always theme, like these little nuggets. It's like a little nugget. You yeah. know, it's like, like not a big scene. That's why I really like these, these little scenes of like, oh, you know, like it's, it's like it's not it's like this lightly planted in the episode. It's not like a big scene. It's just a little scene. And, you know, it's just like a reminder, you know, and I really like yeah. that. I like that. I like the new characters, and of course, I love when we see uh, old, familiar ones. I I love the chemistry oh, yeah. of of the of the two from the Tal Shiar, particularly, and I and I can't think of her name, but you know when she when she when she yells at at Picard like, you know, take this one with you, you, you know, like basically mm-hmm. you're going to get yourself killed, uh, you know, and. and you know, it shows the closeness that, that they have, um, you know, the bond that they, you know, and and these are people that, you know, that we didn't see in Next Gen, that they were brand new characters, and yet they just fit right in. Uh, and and right, they're right. part of Picard's new family that that, worked, that wasn't there before. Uh, even, even the scene with his uh, former chief medical officer from the um, – from the Stargazer, who I believe, you know, that actor I've seen before, and I'm not even sure if we didn't see him in Next Gen and, you know, playing another part. Mm. But I thought that even though that was a brief scene, I thought that was a very powerful one. And, uh, you know, know, when he has to break the news to Picard Picard about, you know, his his medical condition and everything. Right. you know, they he really were in episode of Next Gen. Yeah. Thinking back about it, yeah. Yeah, he looked very familiar. Very he looked very familiar. familiar. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they've cast this this show very well. I think they have, mm-hmm. you know, they give you like you said just enough nuggets to be like, you know, and and it goes by so fast. 
and and you're like, no, no, you know, like, you right. know, it, it's too, this couldn't possibly finish just yet, you know. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's but overall, so many good great, great episode, and I cannot wait for next week. I think next week is going to have some comedy to it. Just like what we saw from the yeah. preview, they had to wear like that 20th century costume. Oh yeah, yeah. Did, did you see the preview? Yes, yes. It's, it's going to be yes. cute. Um, yeah, I think I think there's going to be some humor in that. So, and seeing well, Picard with a pirate eye patch is like yes, Picard's a pirate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you must love that. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, golly gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I and I like um, the the blonde scientist. I thought she had some good scenes in uh, in episode uh, uh, three and four, particularly four when she was you know when on the ship. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she had a little comedy with the pilot. Um, right. Oh know. yeah, with the whole scene with reading the book. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and and is it Sasha? Uh, she's just you know got that that flair of snarkiness, and you know, uh, I I like the uh, the uniforms of of back then. I thought they they're better than what they've got now, personally. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the little stripe and everything, but. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, it, it's definitely got a lot of intrigue. Um, oh, most definitely. And it, and it keeps it moving. And for anybody that that, that says it was you know uh, too slow moving, it's like well they're they're focusing a lot on the characters, and I think there's more than enough to you know keep things rolling here in in the action department oh, as well. Oh, most definitely. I mean, I don't want uh, it to go too fast-paced because, like, I want the character development. I think that's, like, the crucial part of this. It's, like, seeing yeah. Picard, like, you know, try and find some closure to this failed mission. Like, and he's a person who cannot accept failure, as we saw in Family Season 4 back in Next Gen. And it was his yeah. brother, um, his brother, Robert, who, like, had to, like, help him break it down, you know. Right. That you know, all going all the way back to season one four. One of the most so. powerful episodes of Next Gen, if not the most powerful, uh, a perfect oh, yeah. follow-up to the, uh, you know, to the sequel of of that, you know, that two-parter, uh, you know, that was the, the season finale of the season before. But I love mm-hmm. that episode. And, and uh, right. you know, the actor who who played his brother and who hugs him at the end and tells him he loves him and Picard breaking down, realizing, you know, that, that, uh, you know, as his brother said, Oh, my brother, you know, is, is human too, or something to that effect, you know, was right. So, After all, he is human. So yeah. And, um, you know, and I think it was, it was something in this, I, I believe it was episode four. It might've been three. It's like I said, I watched them together when Picard, uh, you know, admits that he he never really felt comfortable at the at the chateau. The, you know, that this wasn't really what he was supposed to do, and he knew it, but he did yeah, it, it for yeah. It, it was I think it was in episode three, I think. 
he made mention to that, I think. You know, that wasn't really his life. You know, he was just, you know, carrying on for family legacy reasons. You know, because right. he was able to get rebuilt after the fire and all that, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, but also, but in that... this episode, in, in this episode four, just going off on the family piece, I was really, I really liked the the interaction between him and that young boy. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. You know, like because cause I always thought, like you know, it, it just it was just unfortunate that you know Picard never became a dad. You know, he gave his life, you know, to Starfleet. But it's just like really like the shows, like you know that that was that side of him. You know, like it's like man, I, that, that, you know, I, I just think that character was just would have been a good dad. But you know, Starfleet became first. You know. Right, and we, we, you know, we saw how in generations how he was affected by, you oh, know, yeah, not by only his, the by, of, by Renee's passing, yes. Yeah, uh, not only his brother, but more so the, you know, his nephew. Yeah, because that and, was the last of the, of, the, of the legacy of the line. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it showed the mortality. And, um, yeah, I like these scenes with with the young, you know, when the when the boy was 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 a boy, you know, and uh, you right, know to yeah. see him, and and it's a good thing that that they you know had that connection because Picard certainly needed someone to come to his rescue. Um, oh yes, most definitely. Uh, that an uh, ill-timed like um, social stance, <laughs> as I like to call. It. I think that's a little ill-timed, Picard. Just a little ill-timed. <laughs> Yeah. So you can't talk your way out of everything, you know. Yeah, no, you can't. <laughs> so overall, but, great um, episode. I, I continue to enjoy the show very, very, very much. So, um, and some of the I, I love the ship too. The um, oh yeah, the my cool too. Yeah, person. Um, He's a model maker, and of course, when he sees a ship, he's like thinking right away, uh, "Oh man, this would make a great model." You know, this is this. Look at this, how sleek it is. And I'm thinking, "Wow, that's a design that I would not have seen coming." You know. Um, mm-hmm. And we have more of a mystery of that pilot who was clearly a first officer. And who Picard right. says, you know, smells, he says, I smell Starfleet on you. You know, every bolt in this ship, you know, everything every, is every in Every bolt place. is, like, two, two, you know, like, two Starfleet regulations. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was, that, that was really good. And I, I like the, 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 the hospitality suite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then the captain is like, man. I hate this hospitality suite. <laughs> <laughs> so. and, I, and I also like Picard when he's, you know, basically making orders, but then looks to the pilot like, well, this is his ship. But then the guy, right. the, the pilot's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, we'll do that, you know. Yeah, all right. Uh, well, it's just good recognition of Picard's part. Like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not the captain. So. Yeah. And, and yet they all know he, you know, it's his mission, it's his quest, and he has the most mm-hmm. experience. So Right. So that's, you know, 
another mm-hmm. aspect of, of a show that has been that quickly proved itself to be very unique to all of mm-hmm. Star Trek because one we're not seeing a prequel thank God um, right. we're seeing a sequel but we're seeing something we've never seen before um, you know a, a, a show that has a character's name on it not a ship's name right, or a right. space station's name. Uh, you know, for the first time, and and it's all about the person and uh, all the people that that he uh, brings into the story and are part of the story. Right. Mhm. And this whole thing about the Romulans now, you know, we were we were uh, postulating about how the Romulans, who they had previously established uh, in in Episode two, maybe or three, that they um, they never really had uh, any artificial beings, you know, or or, or they didn't mm-hmm. put too much into robots or anything like that. So, you know, um, uh, is there some paranoia? Is there some reason why they're so afraid of that and why they're so focused on the synthetics, you know? Right. So it'd be interesting to see like where that goes, and like if this Romulan guy who is in relationship, you know, to to the other, you know, sentient being, you know, like see like where that goes. I'm I'm intrigued, you know, like to see where that goes. Yeah. Because I don't know, you know, because like what the guy was given a week from his boss or something to make. Some type of move. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah. that conspiracy going on. Um, I, right. I I thought um, the scene where our our our, our uh, sinister commodore is wearing sunglasses. I <laughs> I thought <laughs> you know, I thought you know a lot of people even before I saw the episode, I know people were commenting on that, and you know she's supposedly a Vulcan. Uh, even if she is, I don't know if it was established that she's actually a Romulan. I don't recall, but, um, you know, they have that inner eyelid, you know, which is why Spock couldn't be blinded, and yet she's wearing sunglasses. You know? Right. So. Well, well, you know, whatever. Maybe she maybe she just felt like accessorizing that day. Who knows? <laughs> I, I I liked it. I thought it added something to the to the scene. Yeah, actually, I, I, I didn't have no issue with that. But I do know what you're talking about. I've seen the memes on on Facebook. So yeah, you know, I I you know we you know now now at conventions and stuff, if we wear our sunglasses, we're we're regulation. You know, there there you go. All we, <laughs> all we need is a is an episode that shows a, no, a Starfleet. It's, it's canon, so. We just need an episode with a Starfleet hat in it because Wayne always busts my chops about, you know, whatever I wear, uh, my Challenger hat, you know. Um, right. That's all we need. But uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking the show will be, uh, you know, um, gripping for the rest of its time and I'm I'm glad to hear that it's already been renewed. 
Um, yeah, they're you know, new I mean, for season two, this. and they're in talks or whatever for season three, or maybe they have renewed for season three. I don't know. But I heard something about season three. Well, so. this month um, we also heard, you know, there were some more tidbits about plans for 2021 of um, the Section 21 show coming out. Oh, Section 31, um, yeah. And then there was also rumors of a – um, you know, an enterprise early voyages. They aren't calling it that. Um, I don't know what they're calling it. You know, they were re- jokingly referring to it as Captain Pike. I, I hope they don't call it that. Um, right. well, that I would love to have thing. adventures with Christopher Pike. With a guy who played Christopher Pike, I got to meet him at Steel City Con. Nice guy. And, uh, yeah, I, I and I was like, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, he'd he be able to do more episodes, you know, so... He and Ethan Peck were at Shore Leave last year. Um, mm-hmm. They were they were interesting guests. They put them on at least the first day. They put them on together, and they got to play off each other. Um, mm-hmm. But then there were certain things they couldn't talk about because I think they were in negotiations, so they really couldn't talk about well, you know, future episodes. Uh, right, they did right. talk about other projects that they were involved in outside of Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I remember him from the show, The Western Hell on Wheels, that also had Kalamini in it. Um, you know, and it's amazing because he looked totally different at that time, you know, with his, 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 uh, his beard and everything. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe it's the same person. But, yeah, I, I think we all liked the, the the crew of the early voyages, including Rebecca, you know, Ramon as uh, as you know, as number one. So mm-hmm. um, I I could easily see this, you know, um, even if they did it as a mini series, even if it was just a few episodes, um, and and I and I think they probably are going to experiment with, uh, you know, shows that might be of a different type of format that we're used to. I mean, we've seen the Star Trek shorts that can be very right. oh, short. Which are, some of them are absolutely hilarious. Yeah, the cartoons, <laughs> the, the computer animated. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that they're kind of like, you know, breaking the mold of things. We don't, we don't have to be an hour long. You know, we could be... Right. We could do this. We can, we can do a... a, a, a a whole series that's just an arc, a big long story. Um, you know, that that's the one thing I think about the streaming service uh system that allows more freedom than they had, you know, within a, a network or even syndication. That they're mm-hmm. able to do a lot of different type of things. Uh I know right. it's a pain. There's still a lot of fans that hate the fact that they're have to pay to to see it, you know. Oh, um, that's like like look at break it down. That's like basically, you know, for people who eat at McDonald's, I, I no longer eat the fast exactly. food, but that's like a fast food meal, you know, like exactly. sacrifice one meal and go pay for a month's service. That's just yeah. me. I agree. I'm I'm t- I'm kind of tired of that thing, and I and I have some. Star, you know, Star Trek. I won't say Starfleet because they, some of these people aren't in Starfleet anymore, uh, but are still complaining about that. And I'm like, nobody's oh, forcing you. 
you know, nobody's forcing you to, to pay. You don't have to pay. You could also wait and see it for free if you wish uh, from the library or buy, you know, buy the DVD collection when it comes out. It's like, you know, it's your choice, you know, but you're missing some good stuff. If, if you choose yeah, you to are missing good stuff. I, I have, I have like all the streaming services. I was like, that. I, I, I enjoy it too much. You know, being able to watch what I want to watch, when I want to watch, I love that freedom. So, and I love the freedom that the directors and stuff like for Star Trek Picard are able to have. You know, because you, you do notice like some cuss words here and there. You know, it just makes it more real. And I think they have a little bit more freedom than what they would have had if they were on like a regular network. Yeah, exactly. Like last night, um, you know, one of my crew came over, you know, kind of unexpected, but that was okay. And my, and, and Emily was, was cooking something and we were like, oh, well, watch that episode. Uh, she's cooking, so she didn't want to watch, you know, she was hoping we wouldn't watch episode three until after she was cooking. And we were thinking, well, we now have control of the time period. You know, like we could – we 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 don't have to worry that oh Picard starts at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. We can put it on at any point, and you know we timed it in such a way that like when when she was also after dinner and she was making dessert, she she didn't want to watch it. We were like, oh that's okay. We'll watch Doctor Who at eight, and then we'll watch Picard episode four after that. So I mean it it just was like a marathon. You know, uh, and Starfleet commanders, I must interrupt our voyage for today. It's near its end. Uh, Can you please share contact information so that folks who wish to get involved uh, can do so? Uh, Okay, Bobby, you want to go first? Sure. And and we went by so fast. USS USS Challenger.org. Uh, we're on Facebook, and uh, like us on Facebook, and uh, we, uh, you know, we look forward to to seeing you guys. Uh, you know, come by and visit us at the Seaside Heights Community Center at 1 p.m. on for the first Sunday of the month. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Maria. I'm the captain of the USS Stella Prada, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, our Facebook page is facebook.com backslash Stella Parada 82616. Um, we do a lot of different activities. We're going to go to the movies. And we're going to be going to the Carnegie Science Center on February 28th, uh, February 29th. Um, we're going to see a really cool mummy exhibit. We do a lot of different activities. Uh, and we are also going to be finally getting back into running conventions. And we're going to be at the Three Rivers Comic Con. Um, convention at the uh, David Lawrence Convention Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we are excited to be able to be raising money for a charity event called uh, Extra Life. And it is basically a charity where we're going to be raising money for local children's hospitals. So, like, come visit us. Come visit our website. We do a lot of different activities. Um, And we have fun. So, like, come check us out. That is awesome. If you guys can PM me these links, I will post them and uh, promote them um, between now and the events. 
Um, and also, if either of you or both of you are free this Wednesday for a brief period, I'm announcing what we'll be doing with Mount Olympus and science fiction Star Trek fandom uh, henceforth. And I will name you each ambassadors and tie the show thematically <laughs> into what we're doing. So uh, if you're free, okay, awesome. uh, I'd love to have you on the show. I will email you the information or PM you the information. That would be great, Herc. Thanks, thanks so oh, much. Oh, that'd be awesome. Thank okay. you. Thank you so very much. Uh, live long and prosper. Uh, live a glorious life if you're a part Klingon. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you uh, very soon. Okay. Take care and thanks again. Uh, and thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And we're going to listen to Cry Freedom from Bone Poets Orchestra. And then we'll be back with Thomas Punton and Strange New Worlds.
of the all-expanding universe Trust that brain behind your eyes To carve a space for us within the universal mind And if it's up to us to bring some balance back Let it not be said, it's courage that we And that static was part of the song. We're not experiencing, alas, uh, a technical difficulties today, which is a good thing to be able to say. Our next guest is Thomas Ponton. And until we have another title, we're calling this segment Strange New Worlds because it encompasses science fiction uh, and science fact as well as anomalous speculations. Greetings and welcome, Thomas. How are you? Greetings and welcome, Herc. I'm doing very well here. I'm glad uh, to hear that, and I'm glad that we finally started this uh, segment. Um, For those who don't know, uh, Thomas will be alternating um, with uh, um, another group of people, the Chandlers, and every other month they will have a uh, show, and I will be calling together on yet another show I've developed on occasion, so uh, they'll be on very often. And uh, um, anything new and exciting with you? Oh, nothing more recently. I pretty much just got to start my little beat art business started off the ground, and I'm going to be playing that. to vent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called Lionheart's Beat Art. It has a nice ring to it. And I'm going to plan to be vending at the North Dakota Grand Sabbath. It's a little area um, near Anamoose, North Dakota, that's held every year up there. It's a nice little pagan gathering, actually. If you wanted more details about it, you can find that on Eventbite. And I'm planning to actually donate a couple, a couple of my beat arts there for their silent auction too. I found, I made a beat art of uh, a witch's hat, for example. Oh, that'd be awesome! If you send me a link to that event, I will gladly uh, post it on the timeline. Well, certainly. And uh, now today, uh, I'm basically setting things up. Uh, years ago, back in the, I would say the. Uh, uh, mid 80s to about the mid 90s, um, we had a, a Star Trek group uh, running, and uh, mostly uh, the people were Klingons back in the day. 
And we kind of mutated uh, what fandom was. And then that spread throughout the country where people kind of assumed the roles of Klingons rather than just wearing costumes and talking about movies and episodes. Uh, and everybody got more into like it was like a, a, a predecessor of LARPing. So um, we got a lot of people involved all over the place and uh, had a lot of uh, fun. And uh, so now we're going to be doing something very similar with uh, uh, the Olympus in the Star Trek universe and in Battlestar Galactica and in other types of uh, uh, fandoms. And uh, we'll be doing conventions again and so forth. And uh, it's going to tie into what we've been doing here on the podcast. Uh, so I'm going to be inviting uh, uh, Simbaka Rafikin to be an ambassador uh, to Olympus and uh, naming his vessel as, you know, one that has free reign in our space. And what we're going to do is we're going to promote the charitable things that each of the Star Trek groups are doing. Uh, and also we're going to uh, ask uh, for them to join what we're going to be doing collectively, which is trying to do something about the clean water. Uh, because uh, right now our oceans and our uh, clean water are threatened by all sorts of things, everything from radioactivity to plastics to uh, all sorts of uh, chemicals being dumped. And uh, with the EPA rolling back uh, protections, um, it's going to get worse. So we're going to try to do something about this. And um, it's tied into the story that we did where we went to the past and then we got shot at in the present. We've talked about that on one of the shows with the Chandlers. Uh, so that's going to be the storyline, the context that brings us all together and has us working here in uh, 21st century um, Earth. Which I always thought was interesting because the fact that my Simbaka or Ficken character I actually created in the role play rooms in the, in the like the mid to late nineties. Oh wow! And me and my friends, yeah, me and my friends had role played on a couple of websites. There was there used to be a role play site called the WebChat Broadcasting System, for one example, and then eventually that shut down. And then we moved over to the Thorough Realms, and and then from there on on but then from there. And then sometimes we got together also on Star Trek Online as well and did some role plays there. And I, I, I brought my Simbaka freaking character on there as well. And especially sometimes there's role plays that happen over at Cork's Bar when you fly over to Deep Space Nine. That So I get to meet more people and get more interesting stories that way. And I used to, one time, I had met uh, this one Klingon woman that basically she was like a Klingon Captain America. Basically she and her crew was a Klingon group. Yeah, so basically she and her, group, her crew was back from Kirk's era, and they crash-landed on an ice planet. It was frozen, and then the Federation found their ship, got it out, and unfroze them. And so now she had to adjust to how much thing, time to change since then. Oh, wow. So it was same I haven't heard from her in ages because it was an interesting role play that, how, that she's been trying to, trying to adjust. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. They've had crossovers with uh, the superheroes. Uh, um, the superheroes, like I remember the X Men, there was a crossover. There was an Avengers crossover with uh, um, uh, Star Trek. There was a Transformers, a Green Lantern. There, there have been all sorts of uh, uh, crossovers between superheroes and uh, um, the various crews of the Enterprise. Yes, they had the, they had an extra crossover both the, with uh, the original series and Next Generation. And I just happened to have an issue of the Transformers one 
And what's interesting about that one, the artwork of Kirk and the Crew is based on the animated series. Done oh, wow. very well. Yeah. Both for Kirk and the Crew and the Klingons version of the animated series when they meet up with Megatron and all that. So as for one that grew up with the, with the Transformers just as much, it was an interesting issue to find. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. I don't have that particular one. I have the Green Lantern ones. There were two uh, graphic novels, and I managed to get them both. But I haven't read the Transformer one yet. Um, I like the cartoon uh, for, from Days of Dior, and I had that on DVD. So it'd be interesting to see that universe revisited. Mm-hmm. I know that some authors like uh, um, Peter David have integrated some of the characters like uh, A-Rex and Mores into their uh, Star Trek novels. And uh, like Scotty, who was frozen in time, they too were frozen in time somewhere. Um, and uh, they were able to be reassigned to ships. That's interesting. Well, that was how I created my Simbaka or Ficken character was because um, Nickelodeon back in the 80s re-ran the animated series. So when okay. I saw Mares and all that, that kind of was part of the inspiration. And then part of the inspiration was, of course, then my eventual love with the Lion King. So basically I combined the two, and that's when I eventually created Simbaka or Ficken. And, and then by the late 90s, I met up with a few others that had kind of like animalistic kind of characters in the Star Trek universe. And then we eventually created a backstory of basically our race that's referred to as animaloids that basically okay. they came from earth back in the late nineties when they were trying to redo the, the experiments that created Kanye and Sung. But it was basically like the island Dr. Moreau only on Manhattan. And so basically what happened was that as the eugenics wars happened, the animaloids rebelled against their, their, their slave owners and they, <clears throat> borrowed a, a sleeper ship left earth and then found then a sleeper ship landed on the planet and the Prilandian empire was formed from that that stole from the people that landed on that ship oh wow that is an awesome story and uh their origins are not that far from our current uh, time uh so uh it would make sense that they were you know here and helping out and then basically the, the big belief is that it's what i refer to as narnianism that basically the belief is that Prilandia is the new Narnia that Aslan created when he destroyed the old one, and the people are the descendants of the, the Narnians that survived the, the apocalypse of the old Narnia, which was not that far off from the truth of the backstory. Now, you're a fan, I'm a fan, and uh, we've uh, both uh, role-played and role-played and uh, have done conventions, and uh, people who haven't don't realize how rich uh, the storytelling possibilities are and how many different genres they encompass. So just because you're adventuring in mostly a Star Trek universe doesn't mean that uh, all of your origins are Star Trek. I remember back in the day there were uh, in the Star Trek universes that we were uh, telling stories in and enacting stories in, there were Draculans from Vampirella. Uh, there were people from the Doctor Who universe, you know, from Battlestar Galactica, from, you know, all sorts of different science fiction uh, universes, be they television, movie, or comic book, or, or novels. Uh, so it, it very, very, very rich uh, storytelling opportunities. Oh, yeah. In our Star Trek roleplay room, um, as we were, we were picking up steam and all that, actually one of the factions in, the, in our Star Trek universe, um, if you remember the cartoon series Exosquad, it came out like the, like the mid-90s. 
Um, no. It, there no. was a. Fa- it was basically it took place in the 22nd century, and humanity was you know colonizing on like different worlds, like in the solar system, and they created this artificial race, and I can't remember what they're called, but they were they were used just for like the mediocre jobs. Well, this race that they created started rising up and started t- it took over Earth, and so now they had to join the for, create this legion called Exo Squad, which they were in like these like battle mechs and all that to try to take back Earth from this this race that took over. And so in our Star Trek universe, they had a faction in it. And I remember the person that was roleplay. It was like, hey, I remember watching that cartoon. <laughs> so yeah, we've we've done that too. And as a matter of fact, um, I also have I roleplayed a character. I created a character from. The, the Nintendo video game series Star Fox, named Alistair okay. Duncan, who is like a, a Scottish lion, and actually that's a mercenary as well that actually serves Prylandia every now and then. And so I've actually incorporated that just as much of that of, of Star Trek of Star Fox as well. Have you ever gotten involved in the uh, fictive uh, storytelling? Um, you know, like uh, published stories of uh, Simbaka or any of your other characters. I haven't gotten that far yet. I mean, the tricky part about it is that, you know, I would have to kind of rename the name because I don't know how much yeah. Disney would be looking at it and quirking at a little eyebrow and <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. That, which, I mean, which, which, you know, some I people mean, that wouldn't be that hard. Some of the works that have come out were, uh, like, for instance, uh, um, although I didn't uh, see uh, this, uh, uh, I read about it, uh, the... Um, um, Shades of Grey or, or or something like that uh, series. Uh, um, there was kind of like S and M. There was three movies that came out: Fifty Shades of Grey and uh, uh, Fifty Shades Darker and something like that. Um, I heard that that series started as um, uh, fan fiction for the Sparkly Vampires uh, books for Twilight. Oh, you mean Twilight? Yeah. I never yeah, so heard that, about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Twilight uh, fan fiction, and she just changed the names and didn't make him vampires. Uh, you know, made him a corporate executive and things like that, and uh, uh, basically kept the, the writing the same. So uh, I know people who start off writing fan fiction. There were back in the day, too, uh, I remember these women who wrote uh, uh, Klingon fan uh, fiction, and uh, they changed the name from Klingons to something else. And uh, um, it, those books got published as like it, standalone science fiction. So uh, that is uh, possible. People get inspired by all sorts of things. And then these things take on a life of their own. It is, it is kind of fascinating how, that, how they, they, they one inspiration can lead to another to lead to another and all that. And I mean, especially especially in the video game world as well. That I mean, especially a lot of indie video game developers have created their video games that were came of like mechanics that were based on games that they grew up playing. Right, right. I know a lot of my role playing games that I've run over the years were based on different things. You know, uh, sometimes loosely, sometimes uh, uh, deeply, and sometimes as a homage. You know, to something. I'll put in some elements in there. Um, for a while, I would do impersonations of different like comedians, and uh, if people uh, uh, knew the skits, like from Saturday Night Live or uh, Kids in the Hall or, or you know whatever show was playing at the time, uh, if they were familiar with the character, 
they they got a lot of insight into whether to trust the character or not. But people who didn't know, uh, I used characters from wrestling, and sometimes I changed their names. But uh, I remember I had a, a tavern owner, and I would impersonate classy Freddie Blassie, you know. Uh, his name was Oedipus Decimus, uh, but uh, basically I was channeling Freddie Blassie, and uh, I, I played him as a, a non-player character. Well, yeah, and I know, like sometimes I know that when I role play some Bakura Fick, and I, you know, I try to get the leadership qualities kind of like that of Optimus Prime in a sense, mm-hmm. give or take. Because I had, when I had grown up watching the Transformers, I had always admired Optimus Prime's leadership. Uh-huh. How, how he stood cool, cool under the pressure and always thought what was the best option for everybody. Are they making more Transformers movies? Uh, I, I heard that they had stopped. Uh, you know, I don't know uh, uh, what the deal I didn't catch any of them, um, but uh, my son uh, watched them and he had told me that uh, they, they weren't making any more. Yeah, as far as I know, they yeah they stopped on that. You know, they had the Bumblebee movie, which I haven't gotten around to watching as of yet. Uh huh. But yeah, I think as far as I know, yeah, the, the Michael Bay the uh, Transformers movies have stopped, which, in my honest opinion, I'm kind of thankful for. I mean, okay. the first one was not that bad, but then the second one came out, and I kind of cringed a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. That, that happened uh, when the Conan movies came out. Uh, I eventually liked them for what they were, but I was a big, I still am a big Conan fan. <laughs> so I found all three movies kind of cringeworthy. They didn't really uh, encompass uh, uh, the Conan that I grew up reading uh, through the books and through the comics. Uh, I was looking well, for I mean, movies. Yeah, I mean, it's like the big, the big thing of that second Transformers movie was like when they introduced Devastator. It's like I remember how Devastator was a big threat of the, the Decepticons used, and here he comes all this Manala mesh, mesh and all that, and it was one part of him is almost like he needed a sensor bar over him and all that, and I was like, oh my god, Michael Bay, what did you do to him? <laughs> So yeah, it 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 kind of feels sad, but then you know, then you know, interesting subject is that the the Sonic the Hedgehog movie that just came out now it's hitting box office records right now, and really? it was pulled oh, off the weird. gambit. Yeah, and one of the major reasons was they they helped because when they did the first trailer for Sonic, and no one liked the look of him, they went back, they redesigned him, made him more closer to what he traditionally looks like. Everyone loved him, and now. Yeah, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie is doing well in the box office, so it shows all the fact there's a glimmer of hope for Hollywood that they can listen. That, that is <laughs> you know, great. If they're gonna, yeah, they, you know, if they go from the source material. I know it. Uh, <laughs> it, it is uh, the, with the Conan movie. I mean, Jason Momoa made a good Conan, um, so it wasn't uh, Jason Momoa's portrayal of Conan. It was very true to the spirit of the Dark Horse uh, Conan at the time. But they they introduced a lot of elements that looked like they were from the game, the morgue that they had, and they totally ignored, like, travel. So, like, one minute he was uh, in one place on the map, the next minute, if you were familiar with the map at all, he was, like, months journey away, the next minute, you know, he was back. So, uh, like happened in Game of Thrones, 
uh, he seemed to teleport, you know, like from place to place. And uh, again, that was uh, very uh, distracting. And uh, I felt that, you know, even though everybody gave a good performance, the, the villain was kind of weak for the movie that uh, um, Rose McGowan, who played the villain's daughter, she was a much stronger um, presence uh, and they should have made her the main, uh, you know, villain. So th- that kind of uh, spoiled it for me while I was watching it. But like with Schwarzenegger's Conan, after I watched it and let go of my expectations, it, it was a good movie. You know, it was fine for what it was. It sort of same, same thing goes. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing goes with the Narnia movies. Now, I grew up with the BBC. It was like a BBC miniseries that they did of like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of Don Trader. Which, for the most part, they they had it, you know, pretty much like the books. And then, and then of course, Disney did the Walter Media version, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there they did some changes. It didn't ruin it, but there are some parts of it. I mean, my biggest issue was the fact they made Susan B. so aggressive on everybody. I mean, she was meant to be like the motherly figure of the group, but they made her so aggressive on that and all that. And I didn't care for that. I mean, I loved how they did Lucy. I mean, she was so cute and, and, and headstrong and everything like she was in the book and all that. And, and, you know, they got the iconic scenes and all that. And, but I mean, it's like either, or that you could go with those were, I mean, both versions, you know, they try to follow along with the books, but the wall of media version try to stray farther and be its own source material, which right. it worked with a give or take. With the Lord of the Rings, the, I like the movies a lot, um, and uh, they they did balance it more by introducing more female characters and you know stronger female characters, uh, which was fine. And I was hoping they would do the Hobbit the the same way, uh, but unfortunately mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they didn't. So I still find the the, the new Hobbit unwatchable. You know, uh, uh, a lot of work and love got put into it, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who like it, but. Uh, I tried watching it uh, two or three times. I just I just couldn't you know get into it. I found too many things uh, uh, distracting. Yeah, uh, I agree with that too. I mean, it was something to watch the original movies, you know, the original the original Peter Jackson movies, you know, the start of the millennia, and then you know how well they were. Yeah, and that was kind of quite the shock too. I heard they're going to make the Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion and uh, the Hobbit into uh, television shows now on Amazon. Uh, they might have even started for all I know. I don't really have a lot of time to, to search for these things. Uh, do you know anything about that? I haven't heard much. I've been, I haven't been keeping up with that myself. I mean, for me, I've been focusing more on the, the Marvel side of things because as as being a fan of the Fantastic Four, you know, I think they finally confirmed now that by the summer of 2022, finally Marvel Studios will have that Fantastic Four movie coming out and Here's hoping fifth time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, the biggest thing, you know, about you know, talking about Strange New Worlds, of course, is that I've been also a fan of the alternate realities, you know, the the worlds that, you know, what could have been. Okay. And and next year they're gonna have the next Doctor Strange movie, which will be called called the Mirror you know, what's it, the Universe of, well, of Madness, uh, where basically He's going to travel to like alternate realities in the in the Marvel universe, and then after that on Disney Plus they're going to have the What If series, which was based on the old What If comics. Only these will be episodes that will be of What If a different and the different movies in the Marvel universe went differently. 
Right. Um, one of the examples they showed, they revealed, was what if, if it was Peggy Carter that took the super soldier serum and not Steve. And so she becomes Captain America, and and it's, they showed that Steve instead has like this big bulky Iron Man like armor instead, so that he can you know contribute. So it's oh. interesting. I've always been fascinated on that. Yeah, I love the old What If comics. I still have uh, uh, the ones I have out are with the Eternals. Um, the other ones are in a box somewhere. Uh, but I, I enjoyed the What Ifs and. Uh, uh, they had several "What If" Conans. Uh, they were pretty good. They had uh, Conan and uh, Thor adventuring together. Uh, Conan versus uh, Wolverine. Uh, they had two issues of "What If Conan Was Stuck in the Present Day," um, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, they're doing that now with Conan in Marvel. They have like several series where he's adventuring in the current time. Uh, they're well written, but I don't know how I feel about them. Again, it, it kind of contradicts the Conan that I've in my head. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not enjoying them as much as I'd like. One, one, they they revisited the what if back like about ten years ago, and they did some interesting issues where it was basically on historical events. So, like one of the what ifs was where Daredevil was a samurai warrior in ancient Japan, and then there was another one where Captain America fought in the Civil War. And then the issue that caught my attention was what if the Fantastic Four were cosmonauts in the civil in the Cold War? Mm. So basically, it was basically so basically it was reading the three other cosmonauts. They take the flight into outer space. They get bombarded by cosmic rays, but they're basically a a division of the the Soviet Union trying to try to increase the racks with their own different version of the powers, but their their own version of the Fantastic Four in a sense. And then they have like a they have a squabble with the Avengers as they're off off on the shores of Cuba during like the would have almost been up to the the Cuban Missile Crisis in a sense. So it was kind of clever wow. how they kind of paralleled that with American history, but also being a what if story, just all the like. Yeah, um, that that was an excellent series, and uh, now with the multiverse and different universes. Uh, DC recently, I didn't see the season, uh, any of the episodes, but they did the Crisis of Infinite Earths, mm-hmm. and they visited uh, different uh, uh, DC realities. And they, uh, I hear, I have again, I usually catch them when they come out on DVD, and then uh, at some point, a few months after they come out, they're ten dollars at Best Buy or Walmart. So I wait for them, and then I just pick up the series and uh, and watch them. So. Uh, I often don't know what's happening until, you know, long time after other people have seen it. Um, uh, right now, I'm still working on the year previous uh, to that and watching uh, um, some of those uh, play out. Um, Swamp Thing was uh, something that uh, came out. I, I just got the season of Swamp Thing, and uh, that was an excellent series, but it's no longer playing. They they only aired mm-hmm. one or two episodes. I heard, and then uh, uh, they canceled it. But that was excellent. I believe they're also doing an animated uh, DC movie based upon the the Elseworld comic where Superman was raised in the Soviet Union oh, instead awesome. of the United States. So that it's interesting that they're going to do that that story as well. Which, by the way, also that in that Crisis of Infinite Earth, they even got Kevin Conroy, who voiced Batman for so long, also started yeah. in that one. And I think he's he's supposed to be the elder Bruce Wayne in that. 
um, Bert Ward was in one of the episodes <laughs> too. Robin uh, of uh, the original uh, Batman. Uh, he was walking a dog, and he said, "Holy something!" You know, in response to what was going on. I saw a clip of that on YouTube. Which, by the way, I did get to see, get get, get uh, Kevin Connery's uh, autograph at GalaxyCon last November, awesome. and I I. And I said to him, you know, I thought, you know, the episode about the Great Ghost was such a touching episode to have um, Adam West voice in that. And, he, and Kevin Connery said that Adam West was one of the nicest people he ever got to meet and, and talk to. So it was kind of those awe moments. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, my but, old yeah. Adam I, I met Adam West uh, a couple of times. He wasn't very friendly on those days, so... <laughs> Oh, that's okay. Uh, other people have met but him and yeah. said he was very nice. Oh, that's good. But yeah, the, you know, it's interesting about the concept of alternate realities is that there's they, they use it so much in fiction. Of course, there was the show Sliders. Yeah, that came out in the mid '90s. That was where they were. They were jumping from one alternate reality to the next, and it was interesting how much they were doing all these different styles of like. You know, what if we didn't fight in the Vietnam War? Or what what if I think like there was like a hippie revolution? In another one, I'm trying to remember all the, and there was like where like where the females were the majority instead of the males and all that. It was a lot of interesting stories that they did of it. Then then the show got weird. But back in his heyday, it was an interesting concept of of what our our world could have been in one shape or form or another. And that's something I do a lot where. Every once in a while, I'll do a meditation. I have mm-hmm. a certain type of music, actually, I play for that. And I'll meditate and try to, try to spirit travel into these alternate realities to see what it could have been. And one time, I remember doing it, and I, I, did a, I, I promised I would do it only for five minutes. And I got a voice. It was me saying, be thankful for the reality you are in, for the one I am in. It's far more worse, and then my five oh, minutes wow. was up. So it was it was a chilling awesome. feeling to hear myself and to say that. But yeah, I explore uh, through my meditations and uh, uh, other spiritual practices, uh, other uh, alternatives uh, as well. And I also work with my dreams. And in dreams, sometimes you tap into like other uh, realities, you know, where you're living someplace different, doing someplace different with totally different people in your life, you know, and, and you get to see what life would be like, you know, under different circumstances. And uh, it, it's a very interesting practice. And if you do it often, if you start believing uh, that uh, a multiverse is a possibility, you know, because you have these experiences. And if you start doing like a past life regressions and, uh, uh, other types of uh, disciplines like astral projection, uh, it opens up even more possibilities, and and the, and the universe becomes one of possibilities. And scientists actually recently announced that that they say that's highly possible that when you dream, that you're actually tapping into these alternate realities. It's not it's not that you're just that your mind is collaborating all your different thoughts and memories together. That you're actually seeing what could have been in your life. And of course, then I always remember an episode of Rick and Morty that's like, you know, the animated series is kind of had inspired uh-huh. from Back to the Future. Well, there was an episode where basically Rick upgrades their cable box so that they can tap into 
TV shows and TV channels from alternate realities. <laughs> and at this one point, and so at this one point, uh, the father of the family, Jerry, notices that that in this one alternate reality, he became a popular director, but it was because he never got married to his wife Beth, that was in our reality and all that. And mm-hmm. basically, at the end of the episode. They, they they were channel surfing and they see that he was in his alternate version of himself was in this high speed chase and it, the chase ends to where he goes to what would have been his wife in our reality saying that I made a mistake of not hooking up with you and it ended on such kind of somber note of that how thankful they were that they did get together on that because now they saw the reality that yes they were successful but they were depressed because they were lonely because they never got together oh wow <laughs> yeah, I, I caught Rick and Morty. Uh, Rick and Morty was I, – I didn't catch them when it aired, uh, but uh, Ryan Foley, who's uh, one of our regular guests, um, he is a graphic uh, novelist and a bodybuilder, and I, I really like his mythological books. That's how he started being on the show, and then he became a regular uh, after a while. Um, he recommended uh, Rick and Morty very highly, so – uh, because I respected him, I looked into it. And, and again, it's not what I normally watch, but it was a fascinating – uh, on many different levels. So uh, um, I was able to see the first uh, three seasons. I haven't seen the fourth season yet. Yeah, I just, yeah, there are only just five episodes into the fourth season, but yeah, that episode I mentioned was in the very first season of that. And it was, it was just kind of, the, it kind of plunged me further more in that whole thing of, of my love for the old of what could have been and all that. Now, we're approaching the end of our journey today. So how can people get in contact with you? Uh, how could they become part of the Pride Lantian Empire? Uh, how could they uh, look at all the wonderful artwork that you're doing and selling? Um, how could they get involved uh, in uh, your coven? Uh, how can people tap into the Thomas Ponton universes and realities? Well- okay. Well, um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, look up Thomas Ponton and, on there, um, the Pride Landing Empire. If you look on Facebook and look up Simbaka Rafikin, on there, you can find me on Facebook. On there, um, my new business is called Line Art, Line Hearts Bead Art, and you can look at it at Line Hearts Bead Art, all one word, and you can find my business there. And I have a photo section of all of my bead art I have up for sale as well. I'll eventually give you the link to the North Dakota Grand Sabbath that I'll be vending my bead art at as well. As well awesome. as the following, the next weekend, the next week, the next weekend after that, I'll be attending CoreCon that's at in Fargo, North Dakota. And um, if you are in the North Dakota area and you are looking for a coven, uh, you can you can go to SproutTreeTradition.com, and you can find out more info about the Sprout Tradition. And then, if you're also interested in any events, you can go to the Lake Agassiz Pagan Community found on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so very much, uh, Thomas. Are you free this Wednesday for like 10 minutes in the evening? Uh, yes, I would be, yes. Okay, I'm announcing what I'm doing with uh, Mount Olympus and uh, science fiction fandom uh, on Wednesday's show from 9 to 9.40 Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so I'm appointing uh, Simbaka Rafikin an ambassador to Mount Olympus. So it'll be very short, but this way we'll make it official. He would be quite honored. Okay. Be very well, my friend. Thank you very much, and uh, give my regards to everybody out by you. Thank you so much, Hercules. Take care, everyone. 
Okay, we're going to listen to Dave the Bard's The Pipes of Pan, and then we'll be back with our scholars from the edge of time, the legendary Nicholas Thayak and Michelle Brittany. And my board is not cooperating. There we go.
to the gods and all the wonder that they hold But how many people really can hear the pipes of Pan As they sound across our sacred land All of my life I have seen many offerings To the gods and all the wonder that they They sound across our sacred land Greetings and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. Today is our Pride of Olympus crossover as part of the Archons and Aeons series. And tonight's episode is dedicated to science fiction as well as mummies and peplum. Uh, I'm honored to announce our last sec for the day, Scholars from the Edge of Time, with Nicholas Dyer and Michelle Brittany. Greetings and welcome. Greetings, Hercules. How are you this evening? I'm doing incredibly awesome. I started on a new uh, exercise uh, regiment with uh, uh, the um, X3, uh, and the results I'm seeing are unbelievable. Uh, I'm looking at the rest of my life now to see what else I can try something totally different than I was doing before. Uh, hopefully that'll bring about uh, more transformations. Oh, that sounds very exciting. We'll have to have another conversation one of these nights. I'm looking forward to it. And what's up with you guys? Uh, let's see. Uh, we got the the big news about our horror literature book. We were able to complete the edits and the indexing of that, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, maybe uh-huh. Something around that time. Um, we did the marketing material last week and we just got a, an email from our publisher today saying, you know, it's basically all done. Uh, we should be receiving our physical copies of the book very, very soon. So I guess it's the nail in the coffin. The book is basically officially out almost. Uh, awesome. So, yeah, so we're when- excited to have that done that, that that was kind of a big thing for us for the past year and a half was uh coordinating and editing that book when you're ready to promote it let's do a show based on it absolutely we would uh appreciate that i mean you know it's horror literature so it's not quite you know peplum or sci-fi although there's actually a couple sci-fi horrors in it there's a an essay in there on a night of the living dead as it relates to um Oh, man. Uh, who wrote Waiting for Godot? Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett. You, you think you would know this stuff after editing a book for a year and a half, but you just draw a brain fart. Um, there's an, uh, another essay on uh, digital ghosts, specifically in the Stephen King book uh, Cell in the movie Pulse. Okay. And there's also an essay on uh, weird fiction, you know, the Lovecraft and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, relevant stuff in there for you know, your listeners out there. Uh, I, I would add that there's also an Aboriginal um, Indigenous horror uh, essay with brand new uh, research, um, and that's actually a, a, a very interesting... Cutting uh, edge. Yes, cutting edge. It's an interesting topic, and not being that familiar with Australian mythology, it's actually very fascinating. 
but it sounds phenomenally uh, fascinating, and uh, um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> so what's now, going on with you? Uh, what's going on with me? Uh, I'm entering a new phase uh, with things, uh, with uh, exercise and with writing. Um, I decided to attempt a book, and I've written short e-books before, but now this is like a, a book book. And uh, I'm working on uh, it every day. And uh, I'm sharing through this book uh, my dream work. I've been doing dream work since I was a kid. And I have dozens upon dozens of notebooks filled with uh, dreams. Over the years, some have gotten lost or destroyed. But I have most of them since I was a kid. So I have a lot of material uh, to draw from. And uh, I'm going to be describing certain uh, shamanic practices um, that are Olympian uh, that I, I haven't found any literature on them anywhere. So I'd be like uh, introducing a lot of uh, uh, new information for people and then just basically using my own experiences uh, to show how I developed uh, these uh, uh, insights that I'm sharing. And uh, again, dreams are fun for me. I, I love working with dreams and there are techniques like active imagination um, that you can use to continue dreams after you dream them or to interrogate uh, uh, or question uh, dream characters who are very difficult to figure out. So uh, there's a lot of that in it, too. And uh, uh, my dreams seem to be cooperating with me by giving me really uh, uh, interesting you know, <laughs> content lately. So that's a good thing. Cool. Well, we're wishing you good luck on your project. Thank you. I'm doing like three to six pages a day, so it's proceeding uh, uh, pretty fast. And soon I'm going to start organizing the material and editing it. Right now there's like raw content, just stream of uh, consciousness and, you know, uh, and so forth. But I'm looking forward to structuring and polishing it as well. That sounds like a great project for you. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, I'm also looking forward to publishing more in uh, the uh, – uh, Timothy Green Beckley anthologies, um, and I've been asked to contribute to other things as well. So I'm, I'm branching past those into other types of anthologies, and um, uh, also uh, uh, several uh, magazines have asked me, e-zines have asked me to uh, contribute content. So I'm weighing that, and I'm trying to come up with a plan uh, where I can basically structure my time to generate this content. No, that, that makes sense. It's, it's tough. Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's tough to write on demand sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> um, and uh, um, I hear that you guys had many adventures uh, lately in addition to the, the book uh, coming out. Um, and you had uh, information you wished to, to share. And I'm looking forward to hearing it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think the most recent kind of silk, because I know you wanted to kind of start talking about peplum type stuff. Uh, we recently okay. watched uh, Ben Hur, and uh, you awesome. know, uh, we talked about that. I had actually had never seen Ben Hur before, and the as they, you know, so the original one. Um, okay. I knew, uh, you know, as a self-proclaimed scholar of. Uh, and sandal films it's kind of like you know how can you call yourself that without seeing it but then I say ah but I watched the new stuff not the old stuff quite yet um, 
I'd actually watched the new Ben-Hur in theater, and I knew nothing about Ben-Hur. You know, I know that it's one of those films like King Kong and Rosemary's Baby that, you know, it's been in the uh, pop culture lexicon of, you know, some iconic scenes, and particularly the chariot race scene. So going into the remake of Ben-Hur, I tell everyone this, I thought it was going to be like, and I say Fast and the Furious, but with chariots. It's going to be a, a pure, like, sports-slash-racing chariot film. And I was kind of um, gobsmacked when I realized that's just, like, one scene. The, the, the movie's a biblical pepla. And I'm right. like, oh, uh, did not know that. And <laughs> I, I know that the, the new remake gets a lot of uh, flack. I thought it was okay. Uh, not the director's best work. Uh, the director, Timur Bekmatev, I think is how you say his last name. He, he did a, a Russian film called Night Watch, which is amazing. And he also did another Peplum film, uh, the Arena remake, which was decent. You know, it has boobs, I guess. <laughs> but um, so the opportunity came, our downstairs neighbors, like, you guys want to spend her with us? And like, sure. And we had to kind of plan for this because, you know, Ben Hur, the original, is, is nine hours long. It's, uh, it's you know, uh, we'd get like a text from, hey, it's 7 o'clock at night. You want to watch Ben Hur? You're like, are you guys crazy? Uh, you can't do that. So we wound up finally watching Ben Hur, and it was interesting. Um, uh, as, uh, so my, my kind of thoughts on Ben Hur coming at, from a scholarly standpoint. Uh, the first one being, you know, as it is, you know, important in a pure cinema sense. You know, at the time, at the kind of the last ages of the golden age of Hollywood, you know, it's kind of an iconic film of pure filmmaking at its finest. You know, you have the supreme widescreen, the, the you know, vivid uh, technicolor, um, sets upon sets, matte paintings, millions upon billions of extras and costuming. Uh, it is, you know, a monument uh, to filmmaking. It is pure filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, what, the, the two things I like to kind of point out about Ben-Hur, um, the first one being, and I'll probably get kind of groaned at this, is uh, I, I know that uh, within Sword and Sandal aficionados and film scholars, you know, there's some folks that kind of do a distinct divide between you know, the Hollywood historic epic in the Italian sword and sandal film. You know, they're completely two different things. How dare you call Cleopatra a peplum film? You know, that's that's an affront to, you know, that film <laughs> put it in the lower dredges of, like, films like Hercules in the Haunted World or something. Um, I, I don't, you know, have that viewpoint. To me, I, I umbrella to everything. Um, but the point I kind of want to get across here is uh, Ben-Hur is quite honestly uh, it is an Italian sword and sandal film and I'll right. tell you why so um, in more sense than uh, you think uh, so when Michelle's first book came out many years ago she did a book on uh, James Bond called James Bond of Popular Culture um, and I contributed an essay to this book about Italian hero spy films because I kind of lived and breathed years by films at the time. And, and someday I do want to revisit that topic. Um, but one of the, the things I set out to do was to actually quantify what constituted the Italian Euro spy canon. Uh, what makes an Italian Euro spy film? 
and the question became kind of hard to to answer uh, because you, normally you would just say, oh, if it's directed by an Italian filmmaker that makes it an Italian film, well, yes, but it's a bit more complex than that. Um, starting in the very, very late 50s, especially through the 60s, as you know, um, you know, Italy was now in its economic boom, and uh, it was experiencing a huge cinema uh, renaissance. And, you know, uh-huh. Italy's cinema could basically be divided into kind of two tiers. You know, you had this top-level tier of the auteur filmmakers, you know, like, you know, Michael, uh, you know, like Fellini and the like, you know, putting out, you know, international uh, cinema, you know, put, uh, you know, Sophia Loren on it and big, uh, big kind of budget affairs with finely acted and, you know, kind of drama, you know, a lot of uh, neorealism, uh, pink neorealism, so on and so forth. Uh, but you know those are those are auteur filmmakers, and you know their movies could be hit or miss. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you support an industry like that? Well, you have Italy's second tier of filmmaking, and that's their genre cinema, <laughs> which is really good stuff. Is um, in, in the genre cinema of Italy, you know they had cycles of films called uh, uh, felonies. I might be butchering how that's pronounced, but you know you had you know a movie would come out and the Italian production system would ape it, you know, Hercules would come out and then boom, you had the sword and sandal cycle. Um, mm-hmm. You'd have uh, a yeah, good and the bad and the ugly. Boom. You had the spaghetti Western cycle. He also had cycles of Italian Gothic horse, the Jallos, the macaroni combat films, um, the cinema foodie, you know, the, the superhero film, you know, they, they would, you know, just keep going until they kind of ran out of things to do and they move on to the next uh, big thing. Uh-huh. Euro spy, you know, uh, Goldfinger came out and so the Euro spy films happened. And so um, with that in mind, you know, you had this kind of the genre cinema supporting the bigger cinema. Well, part of that isn't just making, you know, Italian films. It was at the time other uh, countries and other studios were coming into Italy as well and saying, hey, 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 you know, you guys got all these sets, you got all this stuff aligned for it, can we use that too? And so you had a lot of mixed productions. And so one of the examples I gave in uh, my essay in Michelle's book was the movie The Venetian Affair, which uh, for all purposes, it's an American spy film, but, you know, it takes place in uh, Venice. You know, it's got Italian sets, Italian extras. It's got Luciana Paluzzi. Um, you know, so, you know, they're filming this movie there. And, of course, what's it feeling? It's feeling the Italian uh, film industry. So, you know, knowing something like that and other films that follow suit, you know, how can those not be considered part of, you know, that canon? So right. with that in mind, I, I bring it back to Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is basically... And there's also other, you know, American productions as well. Uh, Quid Vado is another one, I believe. And um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice a bit. Uh, Ben-Hur is basically a Venetian affair. You know, MGM went over to Italy to Cincinnati uh, Studios, you know, used all their, you know, equipment, their sets, constructed their own, used, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Italian extras. Uh, and what's that doing? It's, you know, feeding into not just, you know, the American uh, film industry, it's feeding into the Italian film industry as well. 
an industry at the time, you know, Hercules, I believe, had just came out, and they're starting their sort of sandal trend, um, it feeds right into it. And so kind of with that in mind, you know, watching Ben-Hur like that, kind of appreciated as this is a really, 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 really big budget Italian sort of sandal film. Uh-huh. Um, so throwing that out there, that it's a bit more complex than just labeling it as, you know, a, a golden age of Hollywood, Cleopatra, Lawrence of Arabia type film. And the second point I want to get across, uh, and then I'll hand this over to Michelle, is if you remember in my book, The New Peplum, Shameless Plug, uh, <laughs> I have an essay in the, in the book called From Crowds to Swarms, Movement and Bodies in the Neo-Peplum Films by Kevin Flanagan. And that entire essay talks about the role of crowds in peplum films. And he, he spends a significant amount of time talking about crowds in old school sorted sandal films and the kind of the, the functions of. Uh, he, he mostly talks about uh, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, but you know he also brings up Ben-Hur and other films. And you know what are the purposes of crowds in these films? And one of the points he, he kind of gets across is, you know, in a classic sword and sandal film, you know, you have your you have your genre tropes that you know make that genre. You know, the the muscular man with his sword and sandals, obviously the visual stuff. Uh, but the the presence of crowds in um, peplum is extremely important. Um, there there's something kind of majestic about seeing you know, both in real life and on screen, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people congregated into one space. Uh, in true antiquity times, you know, you'd have coliseums full of people, you know, you'd have, uh, you know, plays going on that they perform, it, you know, public forums as a way to communicate, as a, a way to control people as well. But in film, you know, it's the, you know, the seeing hundreds of extras on the screen adds a sense of weight to what's going on. It's, it's you know, like seeing a, a majestic mountain or a beautiful forest. It's this kind of, oh, this is a big thing happening. And Ben-Hur also falls into that kind of category of its depiction of crowds in the film. Um, you know, crowds of uh, Jewish people coming together, crowds of Romans, you know, stampeding into the cities. Uh, crowds of people gathering around Jesus to, uh, you know, hear what he has to say. And, you know, those kind of kind of tie back into, you know, my first point of, you know, pure cinema filmmaking right here. And it's just kind of, you know, kind of a part of that. And adds to kind of the, the majesty of, you know, the visualness of uh, the film. So that's kind of the second thing I want to get across of uh, what I got out of Ben-Hur. Oh, awesome. That is very well thought out and uh, and presented. Thank you. All right. Michelle's turn. (laughs) I think we should should discuss a little bit before passing it on to me. But you're right there, and I just spent 10 minutes talking, (laughs) and it would be rude for me to keep going. Well, but you made some valid points, and it's worth, you know, discussing them. So, well, okay. So I'll start with the crowd scene uh, because I – as was bringing that up, it, it made me think about uh, the fact that the, this uh, film is such a great example of the various ways in which crowds were used. Um, like Nick says, you know, you have 
uh, when the Romans first enter, um, you know, the cities, um, you know, there are the victors. Um, you know, there's the uniforms, um, they're, they're definitely set apart. Um, what I find interesting is how often, you know, there's the confinement of, of space uh, used as a way to kind of, I think, evoke some amount of power uh, with regards to the Romans, like when they walk through the streets. There's, it's like they're bursting at the seams, and there's there's this tension at at all times, even at the the. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. No, no. This you said something that's actually super important. Uh, you know the wide open spaces. Uh, you know, uh, in spaces and whatnot. If you compare Ben Hur to a lot of Italian sword and sandal films, there are scenes of big crowds. But a good chunk of those films take place like in caverns and inside ruins and cramped quarters. That it's kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you only have like a couple of scenes of that in Ben Hur, like when they're in the Valley of the Leopards, uh, Lepers, not Leopards. Uh, <laughs> uh, this kind of a big shift in, you know, Ben Hur with its big widescreen. You fill up that space with crowds, but with, you know, some Italian sort of cinema film, which might have been full screen or at least edited at full screen later, it's even more claustrophobic because it's underground caves or ruins or, you know, you're in my temple, I'm about to shove you into a pit of spikes. <laughs> well, and I, I would say that even in uh, Ben-Hur, you have those scenes because at the beginning you have the manger scene in which, uh, you know, the birth of Christ, they're in, they're in a manger. It's mostly dark. Um, and then you compare that with the uh, images of the dungeon. The fact, again, you have very darkness, it's very claustrophobic. And, I, you know, even the chariot race, which was an incredible shoot, um, I was reading up on it a little bit and uh, saw that uh, Sergio uh, Leone was part of the second unit that worked on the chariot race scene. See, it's a total Italian sword and sandal film. <laughs> but, you know, even in that huge expanse of, of a scene, you know, they filled it up with the horses and the way that they shot it, that, again, you have that, that interesting tension uh, that's created. Uh, the fact that it took a year to plan that out and then, you know, work with the with the stunt coordinating, the fact that, you know, Heston and uh, I think it was Stephen Boyd who was Masala, you know, uh, learning to, you know, uh, drive their chariots, um, you know, just how much work went into being able to portray those crowd scenes. And I, 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 one of the things that I thought was also interesting, if you compare this with, like, um, I think the Ten Commandments and all of the various crowd scenes within that and how that's used, uh, very similar uh, to, I think, Ben Hur. Um, I, you know, in, I am like Nick, I actually saw the remake uh, from a few that was done a couple of years ago or five years ago, whenever it was. Um, I saw that first before I saw the original. Um, so I thought the um, 
the storyline with Christ was very interestingly done in Ben in the original Ben Hur, because I knew that it it was the story of Christ. But when I saw the remake, I was like, wow, there's like almost none of that story left in that film. So it was so then to come to the original and be able to see more of the story and make more connections with thoughts and how it relates. Because in the remake, there's I think there's an indicator of Christ's birth. And then it's like there's nothing. And then it's like. Uh, to the point of uh, the the trial, the tearing of the cross, and the, the crucifixion, and so it it seemed really disjointed. Where I feel like the original Ben Hur is a very well thought out, well crafted film. Um, I know Nick probably is more of the opinion that it could have been trimmed more. Um, but I actually enjoyed the pacing of the original film. I thought it was well done. I, I really paid a lot of attention to the shots um, and how they uh, conveyed the characters, um, particularly between uh, Heston's character and uh, the character Masala when they start to have, you know, it's very obvious that they have differing opinions um, and when they they talk uh, out at the stable, the fact that they kept to like uh, I think like mid shots through most of it, it's just very interesting. And then when the real tension comes to the fact that they they are definitely going off in different directions when you had you know close up, I thought it was was particularly well done. Those are some of my thoughts. My my only kind of asterisk to that would be Charlton mm-hmm. Heston, not the biggest fan of. To me in the movie, his head was always at a perpetual 45 degree tilt, and he always seemed to be snarling. Uh, especially <laughs> at you know, his former friend. So just chewing that scenery up. But again, now, that was the type of acting back then as well. You know, the big and he was known for that type of acting. Um, there were, have you guys compared the Charlton Heston version to the original version, I think, from the 20s? There, there was a silent version, if I recall correctly. And then there were several remakes, including a cartoon, uh, if I recall correctly. I have not seen the silent. I know of it. Uh, I have not seen it. I do have the, da, 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 the Asylum Films version that's kind of a... Um, I want to say a remake of it, but definitely a knockoff of it. Haven't seen that one yet either. Because what Michelle yeah, said is so interesting on how they, they basically changed the uh, the story and they downplayed certain elements and that, how that, you know, pretty much, even though I'm sure a lot was uh, similar or the same, it changed the focus of everything. Yeah, it really did because, uh, and it was kind of jarring when you actually had Christ's story in the remake because it was so very much uh, Judah's story. Um, And then you had kind of this splicing in. I thought it did a disservice to that part of the story um, where I thought in the original, I think it was, was more kind of, 
you know, dovetails in the fact that uh, Judah receives water from Christ and, you know, the peace and that he feels like he knows that, you know, this person is different. Um, I thought it was really well done and, and something that I hadn't immediately noticed, but our neighbors mentioned that Christ is never shown. If he's shown, it's always from the back. So you never see his face. You only mm. see, you know, from the neck down or you see from behind. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting decision to not show the actor's face. Well, you know, that that would be something you would see more in modern filmmaking, not like something back then. That To me, that would be like a very progressive mm-hmm. choice to do because, you know, why, why wouldn't you want to show a main character, you know? Uh, it, it uh, you know, you want, back then, you know, if you were starting, you wanted to be on screen, obviously. But yeah. the, the, the fact that to make the conscious effort to even the front shots of Jesus, they either, you know, uh, they uh, rotoscope the shadows over. Like when he was, yeah, you know, exactly. During, so to during make the that call is a yeah. very, you know, more of a 80s onward thing to do. I would yeah. 70s onward thing, actually, 70s when you get experience in the past, so. Yeah, and I, I honestly felt that, you know, I didn't feel like the film was dated. I felt that it was so well done that um, I just got swept up into the story and wasn't thinking, oh, well, that, that feels dated. Um, I felt, and I, I, I would agree, I think it was progressive to, to not show his show his face, and I think that, I was reading through the Wikipedia, and I'll have to do more more research, but I would be really curious to read more about that decision to to not show his face and to keep uh, his face in the shadows like during the, the trial. You know, I also thought that, again, going back to your uh, point about the, the, uh, the crowd, how – how small the crowd was sort of in the uh, in the scene where uh, Jesus is carrying his cross um, and going uh-huh. up the stairs, stuff like that. I don't know. I never thought about it in that regard. Although I will say that the uh, the is it the passion of oh, what's the uh, passion of Christ? Yeah, the passion of Christ. I think the the crucifixion or the scene where Jesus is taking the cross is almost an homage to Ben-Hur, I think. Uh, I, I think that's depicted in a lot of films. Of course, I'll take the stand for the movie that picks it the best is Life of Brian. <laughs> no? Okay, I'll go with that one. Um, uh, one last kind of thought. Uh, Eric, have you seen the movie Hail Caesar? I may have. I have uh, a lot of uh, peplum films, uh, old and new, and uh, um, there's very few of them, I think, that I'm missing. Um, and uh, I don't know if I've seen Caesar. Can you describe it a little bit? Maybe I'll remember. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's not a peplum film per se. It's a Coen Brothers film, and it came out about four years ago. And it's about the golden age of Hollywood filmmaking. It takes place in the 50s. Uh, but it has uh, George Clooney as an actor in it, 
And what they're doing is they're making kind of their version of Ben-Hur. And the movie within the movie is called uh, Hail Caesar, It's Hail of the Christ. And it's not really a parody per se, but it is a comedy of a film. But I like to say it's kind of a, you know, behind the scenes of what making Ben-Hur may have been like. But I highly recommend it. It was one of the uh, films that was the – Genesis of the new Peplum book when that when that film came out and you know mixing classic Peplum with you know uh, modern filmmaking and putting it in the 1950s you know hey here's a blending of you know two different time periods but I would say uh, watching Hail Caesar might give a a slightly different appreciation or take on you know Ben Hur. I will definitely uh, look into it. And uh, um, I, when you were describing it, it sounded familiar. So I may have seen it at some point, uh, but that's one I definitely don't have in my collection. So now it's time to remedy that. So I will quest for it. Highly recommended. It is funny. It, every, every person in it is great. It has the guy that would go on to play the new Han Solo. This is one of his early okay. films, and he's really good too. It's just, he's got, you know, Brolin in it and uh, Scarlett Johansson and okay, yes, yes, yes. I, I believe I did see that. Great film, great film. When, when you said the guy who played Han Solo, all of a sudden everything, everything clicked. <laughs> so yes, I will. I will seek that out and watch it again on your recommendation. It sounds uh, like something I'd like. I, I would enjoy and like to see again. Our yeah. voyage for today has come to an end. I really enjoyed speaking with uh, both of you. And I'm looking forward to our next uh, conversation. If you would kindly share your contact information and uh, leave us with uh, any closing words, I'd greatly appreciate it. Sure. Uh, You can find me at uh, michellebrittany.com. You can also find me over at Amazon. I have an author page there. Um, And then I also do a once a week uh, Michelle's Musings on Mummies. That's the mummy part of uh, Scholars from the Edge of Time. Um, (laughs) I'm the one that brings that to the table. Um, I already have my uh, musing up for this week. It is about the Torg uh, role-playing campaign called the Nile Empire. So I did uh, an unwrapping of of that uh, game. So um, yeah, that's where where you can find me. Uh, We also have the new book. uh, It's up at my author page that should be coming out shortly. Uh, You can pre-order it at Amazon or from McFarland. And that book is called Horror Literature from Postmodern, from Gothic to Postmodern Critical Essays. And I'm found at nickdyak.com, and from there is from my email, all my social media, all my news, and all that fun stuff. And yeah, I'm that one stop shop kind of guy. Incredibly awesome. Thanks again, and uh, keep up the awesome work. You guys are awesome. Thank you. You too. Thank you, and thanks to all who've been listening to us uh, tonight. Until next time. Uh, This is Hercules Invictus and the scholars from the edge of time wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Be well, everybody.
for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.